Lord, your love for us is passionate, unshakable, and everlasting. Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to put our faith in this love that we might believe and live by the promise of your resurrection. Amen. You may be seated. So a little while ago, a friend of mine posted a meme that had each of the seven capital vices listed. Pride, wrath, lust, envy, gluttony, greed, and sloth. And it paired each of them with a different social media platform. Very clever. Now this meme had Twitter paired with wrath, and that's right, because Twitter is demonstrably one of the great drivers of outrage culture. But sometimes, because Twitter requires you to be succinct, it's also the most clever and interesting place on the internet. So the other day, Mother Tish told me about this thread that I went and looked up for myself as I was getting ready for this sermon. Here's how this thread got started. There's an account called Atheist Forum, and whichever atheist it was had written in all caps, Christianity, and then defined it this way. Belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, and one light year equals approximately 6 trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. Whoever it was that wrote this wants you to know how ridiculous, how ludicrous, how utterly improbable such a thing would be. Who could be so narcissistic, so self-centered, so full of themselves to believe such nonsense in a scientific age when NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has taken images of the Kuiper Belt 3.79 billion miles away from the Earth? But man, the Christian responses to this? Gold! There's a pastor in New York City named John Stark, and he got on and responded, This is why we sing. We're going to work for the good guys. You know what I'm saying? All right, anyway. This really is the most audacious claim imaginable. And people have always had their doubts about it. Back in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensees, When I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in an eternity before and after, the little space I fill engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces whereof I know nothing and which know nothing of me, I am terrified. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. But this is the Christian claim, brothers and sisters. God made these vast expanses over billions of years with such precise fine-tuning that so far as we know, at least in our galaxy, only the earth supports life. Philosophers looking at this brute fact speak of a kind of anthropic principle that seems to be embedded in the cosmos. And not only do Christians claim that God made the universe such that the earth only could support human life, but that he entered into personal communion with those human beings and entrusted the stewardship of this little blue-green planet to them. And when they rebelled against him, rather than wiping the slate clean, he relentlessly pursued them because he loved them with a permanent, passionate love that the most ardent, burning hot, intense, erotic love can only distantly echo. He loved them so much that he became one of them in order to rescue them from every barrier that keeps them from communion with him. And although we have cheapened this verse by putting it at signs at football games and on billboards and the sides of pickup trucks, when we say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, all of that 
is what we mean. If you're a Christian this morning, this is why we sing. Now, a lot of the time as I'm preparing to preach, God places some kind of pastoral burden on on my heart, something that I think he wants me to communicate to you. Sometimes it seems like he wants you to know about the distinctiveness of your identity as the mystical body of Christ. Sometimes it seems like he wants me to communicate a truth or a practice that the ancient church lived by and that we've forgotten all about but we desperately need to recover. But this week, I couldn't shake this feeling that what God wanted me to tell you was this. The Father is completely, passionately, rapturously in love with you. And he will stop at nothing, even giving his only begotten son, that you should not perish by moving further and further away from the source of life, but that you might turn back to him and be in communion with him. Now probably some of you hear that and you think, yeah, we know this. We've heard like 3,000 sermons, the punchline of which is Jesus loves you. This is literally the plot of every children's Bible story. Yes, of course God loves us. My mom loves me too. But stay with me for a second, okay? There's a difference between knowing something cognitively and conceptually and knowing something in such a way that you're willing to stake your entire life upon it. Just a few years ago, my Uncle Kenny retired from the Army. For almost his entire military career, he flew Black Hawk helicopters. And when his body got too battered and slammed around from flying them, and he actually developed a tremor, he started working on them as a mechanic instead, and he got to know them inside and out. Now, my Uncle Kenny, you got to understand, he's like a born mechanic. He worked on postal service jeeps for some time period in his life before the helicopters, and now that he's retired, he spends like all of his time restoring old cars. I, I can't understand any of this, but he's deeply passionate about it, and he makes being a mechanic sound sexy, like it's the most exciting vocation in the history of the world. So one time he was telling me about the night missions he used to fly and about flying through severe weather with high winds and zero visibility. And he said, when you're flying in these conditions, at first it's really rattling, as you might imagine. But over time, you get over it. He said, at first you want to trust your intuitions and the evidence of your senses, but that doesn't work in those circumstances. You have to get to the place where the only thing that you trust at all times is your instruments. And, you know, because he's a mechanic, then he explains to me the ins and outs of all these instruments and how they'll tell you your elevation and your direction and your airspeed and all that kind of stuff. And the proper calibration of those instruments is literally what you stake your life on every time you're in the air. So the more I've thought about it, the more I think the love of God is kind of like that. So I talked to Kenny, you know, and now I've got some facts about flying a Blackhawk. You're not supposed to trust your gut or your senses, but your instruments. I can literally not imagine doing that. But for Kenny, these facts are visceral. They're embedded in his muscle memory. And therefore, he actually trusts them enough to bet his whole life on them. And St. Paul is telling us in Romans 4 that Abraham experienced the love of God in the way that Kenny experiences flying a Blackhawk after 20 years and that we are meant to experience it that way too. Now, to put it mildly, Romans is an enormously complex letter. St. Paul here in this letter is everything I want to be when I grow up. He's intellectually deep. He's casting a vision for a multi-ethnic church composed of Jews and Gentiles together, both justified by faith in the Messiah and the promise of the resurrection so that no one can boast except for in Christ Jesus. He's super passionate. He's super pastoral. 
And so this letter is supremely wide-ranging in its argumentation. But through it all, there's this one theme that's constantly breaking out freshly. The love of God, which demands and then rewards trust. So Romans is a little bit like Ravel's piece, Bolero. And I'm sorry to butcher this for those of you who know music well. I rely completely on Chris Massa for this little illustration. So thank you, Chris, for explaining to me how that piece works. So in Bolero, there's an ostinato, a relentless drumbeat, which runs underneath the melody in its entirety. The melody is repeated by all these different instruments. Each time, it's slightly reharmonized, reorchestrated, and bringing out a different color and texture in the melody. But the ostinato plays on relentlessly throughout the whole 15-minute piece. And the ostinato of Romans is the passionate love of God for his people, which demands and then rewards trust. So in Romans 4, St. Paul says that Abraham was not justified by the works of the law. And here that means specifically the Mosaic law and more precisely the act of circumcision. Instead, he's justified by faith. Now what does justification mean? N.T. Wright defines justification as being freely declared in the right, as in a verdict in a court case. What Paul is saying and what Genesis 12 is saying is pretty shocking, actually, when you understand it. God is saying that something is true about Abraham that isn't true about Abraham yet. Abraham in himself is not in the right before God. And clearly, if you read his story, he consistently fails in doing what God tells him to do. And so he continues not to be in the right in his relationship to God. And so Abraham isn't justified by something that he does to make himself right by God. He's justified by God's declaration that he is so. Why does God do this? Because Abraham places his trust in God's love and his promise. And God says, I can work with that. I can use that trust as a lever to pry open Abraham's corrupt will and mind and heart and bend him back into right relationship with me. God's love has been poured out on Abraham in this call to follow him. And Abraham responds. And God's response to that is to call Abraham righteous and just, even though Abraham hasn't done a single thing yet. All he did was say, okay, I believe you. I put my trust in this big promise you're making to me now because you love me. Abraham has faith. And again, that means Abraham trusted God like a helicopter pilot trusts his instruments. Paul says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. In other words, he did not trust the evidence of his senses. His body was as good as dead, Paul says. He's about 100 years old when God makes this promise to him. And Sarah was barren. That's a pretty good bet that you're not going to have any heirs, Abraham. But instead of trusting the evidence of his senses... He trusted in the promise. And more importantly, he trusted in the strength of the one who made the promise. To trust the promise, St. Paul is saying to us, is Abraham's first step in coming to trust the love and the character and the strength of God. And as he put his faith in the promise and moved forward in trusting God, he found that his faith was strengthened because he began to see it fulfilled bit by bit. 
By trusting God over time, he is becoming like what God declared him to be because he is being filled with God's love and entering more and more into communion with God. Because actually, communion with God is what it means to be righteous. Righteousness in Scripture is a relational category. It is being in right relationship with God and in right relationship with everyone else. And it's righteousness before God, the vertical dimension, that is the source of righteousness with everyone else, the horizontal dimension. This relational character of righteousness is why Paul uses righteousness in Romans to describe not only the Roman church's relationship with God, but the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the same church. Now that's another whole sermon. Hopefully I'll get to preach that one to you someday. That excites me a great deal. But let's get back to our topic for today. Abraham is growing in relational righteousness as his faith grows. So God isn't lying when he credits Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. He's not saying, you're not righteous, but I'll pretend like you are. He knows that so long as Abraham clings to the promise, he will come more and more to see and to experience that love that God has for him and to love him in return. And Abraham's heart and his will through this process will be healed and his mind will be able to see who God is more and more clearly and there will be true communion that emerges between them. And so God knows that so long as Abraham has faith, this is a completely sure bet. Because Abraham is becoming righteous not by his own power, but by God's power. God is using the lever of Abraham's trust to pry open his heart and his mind and his will to heal him from head to toe. And this process continues to such a degree that three times in Scripture, Abraham is called a friend of God. James 2.23 says that Abraham acted upon his trust in the confidence that God will fulfill the promise no matter what the circumstances look like. And in so doing, he places Isaac upon the altar by faith. His faith is proved by what he does on the basis of this faith. And so God is not wrong to call him righteous before he's actually righteous. Because he trusted God, he was God's friend. And he became more and more capable of really being a friend to God in return. So Paul is really big in this chapter on the fact that Abraham has this faith before he receives circumcision, which comes later. That means that Abraham can be the spiritual father, both of those who have received circumcision under the Mosaic Covenant, and the spiritual father of those who have not received circumcision because they're Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles are enslaved by sin, and so they are both in rebellion against God. Both groups are constitutionally incapable of receiving God's love. They are both running away from God. And the Jews, he says, have nothing to boast about in the law. The law does not make them righteous before God. What the law does for them is to expose the sin that remains hidden from the Gentiles. The law brings wrath if you rely on it to be justified or to be declared in the right before God. That's what Paul says here in this passage. But just before in Romans chapter 1, he said the Gentiles are in exactly the same position as the Jews because they have some sense of the law written within them, even though they don't have the Torah. And so they also are running from God. 
So it's not by the law that anyone can be declared righteous before God because the law has this one purpose to show that God is so holy that no one can be righteous before him unless he makes them righteous. No one can by their own power be in the right before God because all of us are enslaved to sin. All of us are in rebellion against God. But this is why Abraham is so very important for Paul. Abraham shows that God does not intend to condemn us for our rebellion, to wipe the slate clean. He means to heal us. And so like Abraham, we're given a promise to hold on to, to put our trust in, like my uncle put his trust in those instruments in the cockpit as he's flying. Paul says that the words, it was credited to him as righteousness, were not spoken to Abraham alone, but also to us. The promise is not the same for us as it was for Abraham. But the God who made the promise is the same. And so we can trust the promise is properly calibrated to reality. We are to trust in the one who raised Jesus from the dead and who will also raise us from the dead with him. And this is the same God that Abraham trusted to make him the father of many nations. Our promise the one that has been entrusted to us to hold on to, to put all of our trust in, is that we will be raised in a resurrection like Jesus's. That death itself, which is the consequence of sin, will also one day die. Now this is the whole challenge of the Christian life, isn't it? We know in a cognitive and conceptual way that God loves us. And we know, or I hope we know, if you don't know, here's, here, this is true, in a cognitive and conceptual way, that because God loves us, God promises to raise us with Jesus from the dead and that death itself shall die. But the universal experience of all human beings everywhere and at all times is terror at the prospect of death. Death is very visceral. It's all around us. It is the evidence of our senses. There are like 20,000 think pieces that are waiting for you on the internet to breathlessly report to you this morning all the deaths and the dangers of death out there in this world. And it's the evidence of our senses even here this morning in this sacred space. We've changed up some things in our worship to reflect the very real prospect that the coronavirus is going to come into our community at some point. And if that happens, some in our community and possibly in this church may die because of that illness. And hey, even if that doesn't happen, nobody gets out of life alive. So the question is, how can we embed God's promise, the resurrection, into our muscle memory, as it were, so that we can trust it like St. Paul trusted, when clearly death is the more visible and evident thing? St. Paul tells us two things that we must do neither of which are very easy, but both of which will help us, like Abraham, to put our trust in the promise of the resurrection even though the evidence of our senses disconfirms it. Abraham put his trust in God for something huge, that he would be the father of many nations and that all nations upon earth would be blessed through him. But then God asked him to do a bunch of smaller things to strengthen his trust in the big promise. Abraham has to leave Ur. Abraham has to be circumcised. Abraham has to trust that God will give him an heir through Sarah, who is barren and ancient, when he himself is 100 years old. 
When Isaac is born, God tells him that he has to go sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and so on. All of Abraham's life are these little micro things that God is asking him to do to put his trust in, that he may trust in the big promise more and more fully. And we should take heart that Abraham does not do this well. Abraham is a disaster. Frankly, Abraham's story is totally embarrassing and there's nothing heroic about it. You know like the spoof superhero movies where like superheroes are like smashing into all the buildings in New York City and knocking them all down? That's like Abraham's life. And to me, this actually powerful evidence of the Bible's authenticity that it does, it makes no efforts to sanitize his story. He bumbles around and he does a ton of damage, but his faith remains and his faith makes all the difference in his life. And in the same way, God is asking us to trust us in smaller ways all the time in our sufferings. Our sufferings are little deaths that we endure in anticipation of the final death that we all must die. So when we trust God through our sufferings and hold on to him in the hope of the promise of the resurrection, we also experience little installments of the resurrection now as well. Paul says that if we do this, Actually, what he says is, if we glory in our sufferings, then suffering will produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character. You know it, friends. What does it produce? Hope. That's right. And the hope forged in us by this process makes us righteous, right before God, just as God has declared us to be. Because if we're paying attention to where God is in our sufferings, we are right in that moment trusting him and growing in our experience of his love and coming into right relationship with him. And this is why it is so important for us to know older saints who have devoted their lives to putting their trust in God. Their character shines with the brightness of a thousand suns, not because they're morally perfect, but because they are in right relationship with God and filled with love for everyone around them. And when we see older and wiser saints doing that, we have confidence that we can do it too. Paul says we can trust this hope because in it God's love has been poured out in our hearts. The older translation that Augustine uses, the old Latin translation says the love of God is shed abroad upon our hearts. I like that better through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is the first way that we can grow in faith, placing more and more trust in the promise as we hold on to God in the midst of our sufferings. The second thing Paul says to do is to meditate on the resurrection itself. Because when we spend time meditating on the resurrection, we come to realize how outrageous and completely beyond belief, how staggering to the imagination God's love for us must actually be. Do you want to know how to do this? I would encourage you at least once a day, every day this week, to read through all of Romans 8 out loud. Reading it out loud will make you slow down enough that you are ingesting all of the words. Reading through the whole passage, you will get all the dimensions of what Paul is saying as he is meditating upon the resurrection. Listen to what he says in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
The whole creation is groaning with anticipation, St. Paul says, until this thing is done, until the table is set, until the feast is served, until the wine is flowing and never ending, and God has consummated this union with us that he has eagerly and earnestly desired. Put your trust in him, and nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing will ever separate you, not even your sin, from the future that he has for you in which death is no more and sin is no more and no disease or fear can ever touch you again. Just listen to Paul as he meditates on the promise. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? And let's add this morning the coronavirus. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor any depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, do you feel how much God loves you? Okay, some of us in this room hearing this might be wondering, okay, maybe. Maybe I will believe that God loves me that much. Maybe I could put my trust in this promise of the resurrection and believe that through this trust that God will heal me from head to toe so that I am righteous as he has declared me to be. But why? Why does God love me like this? Those who've experienced real love in this room Know that the experience of love is its own justification. That is because God is its source. It is the power by which he created the cosmos. It is the nature of God himself. In the beginning was love. Because in the beginning was the community of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And every genuine act of love that you and I have ever experienced in our entire life is a signpost that was designed to point you back and light the path to Him. I want to return as we close to that tweet thread that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. So remember that atheist forum, right? That account said that Christianity is the belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. Now Liz Bruning, who's a Roman Catholic columnist for the New York Times, said this in reply. He 
If you could, you would do this for love. Lovers do insane things for each other. That's why the theologian Hansers von Balthasar once wrote, lovers know the most about God. If you can imagine that your lover, whose devotion to you knows no bounds, is also the creator, that lover would do something outrageous, like design a cosmos of 200 billion galaxies just to say, I love you. Look up and know that I love you. In the winding and ambiguous path of history, there is this one steady drumbeat, this one ostinato that always and everywhere remains the same. It is the love of God. My friends, he has loved you with an everlasting love. Put your trust in his promise. Let it be more real to you this morning even than the evidence of your senses. Amen.